So we're on John 19, and uh, I think we stopped with verse 8. Okay. So, um, Christian, would you read verses 8 to 12, please? Okay. When Pilate therefore heard this statement, he was the more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you do not know? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. We uh, lack the context here. Maybe we didn't read verses 1 to 7. Is that I possible? Did, I don't remember that, but then again, we arrived late. We have before. I mean, I remember we've gone to this <clears throat> verse before, but I think when you guys went back, yeah. you didn't go over well, Why don't we... Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 to 7. Okay. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, and the soldiers wore, wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they dressed him in a purple robe. They kept coming up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and striking him in the face. Pilate went out again and said to them, Look, I am bringing, you out, bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no case against him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the priests and the chief priests and the police saw him, they shouted, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no case against him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he is claimed to be the Son of God. And it's that that makes Pilate afraid. The idea that Jesus claims to be the Son of God. Why would Pilate be afraid of that? And he's not a particularly religious man, it seems. Isn't that more uprisings? Yeah, but he did understand the fear of God. That's pretty clear. So whatever that fear is, the God of heaven is... The, the Romans did fear the gods. They, they did have a pretty strong, uh, I would say, basis of fear. But it's possible, too, that Pilate has been watching Judaism for a long time. He's been stationed in Jerusalem for some time. He's, he's seen evidence of God's work in his people. And so, uh, if he claimed to be the Son of God, that's something to stop him a little. Well, but, and the evidence suggests that he, he must have had some sort of report back about the miracles that Jesus was doing, uh, because it was in part of his right. governing territory, so he, right. you know, he had... I'm sure he knew what was going on in his governing territory, and part of that. And, that and, and there's a piece of this that we find in Matthew that uh, John doesn't mention, and that's this wife's dream, yeah. where he sends in this note, you know, I've suffered much on this account of this man mm-hmm. this night. Take care of what you do to him. Uh, so that all those things combined makes this very significant. So he's more afraid than ever. Apparently he's afraid from the get-go. He's afraid of being blamed for this uprising. He's afraid it'll turn into something really major. But now he's afraid of who Jesus is. 
And so he, he wants to know, where are you from? Uh, tell me, are you the Son of God? Are you from heaven? And Jesus doesn't answer. Why does Jesus not answer? Well, I mean, his, his deeds should show where he's from already. Because like, he, he often doesn't plead his own case whenever they ask him any answers, and he just says, like, you know, my acts speak for themselves. Judge for yourselves. Mm-hmm. I think that's definitely part of it. And there's another part where Jesus said, for this I was born, and this is in chapter 18, and for this I come into the world. This is in the context of, are you a king? Mm-hmm. And Jesus said, you are the one that says I'm a king. But for this I was born, and for this I came to the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, what is truth? And then he leaves immediately. He doesn't wait for an answer. And he, the, the, we don't have the tone of voice he used. Yeah. <laughs> but it's very possible he said, what is truth? Like that. Yeah. The skepticism, the, the what is that? Uh, doesn't fit in his Roman worldview. And so, Jesus doesn't answer him because he did not allow Jesus to answer him earlier. He's kind of cut himself off from hearing the truth. So, Pilate uses the power strategy on him. Don't you know that I am the one that has authority over you right now? (laughs) Um, And tries to conjole him to talk by power mode. And Jesus just flings it right back at him. You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. But then he seeks to excuse him. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Jesus isn't just fair, he's merciful. And that shows up time and time again. But I, I also am more and more struck with how Jesus handled his enemies. He did not he did not cow to them in any way. He did not submit to them in any way. Jesus acknowledges here a greater authority and it reminds me of a situation I know of personally where an employee in denominational employment was beleaguered a little bit, well, maybe not beleaguered, but he was dealing with the conference president who was known to be, well, he was known to be a rather autocratic man. And uh, he was about to lose his current position and be put into something he didn't feel as comfortable doing. And this uh, conference president came up to him and kind of put his arm around him and said, um, the brethren will take will uh, take care of you, meaning that they'll provide for you work. <laughs> and uh, this man said, I work for the Lord and not the brethren. And uh, not too long after that, he got fired. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um... And it, it almost feels like, well, that's what Jesus is saying here. I don't work for you, Pilate. <laughs> you don't really have any authority over you, over me, except as given from God. So the man went away feeling like he had totally blown it and had done the wrong thing. But 
but his words have stuck with me all these years, and I have I have vowed that I work for the Lord and not the church. The church may be the intermediary uh, paying my bills, but ultimately they couldn't do that if God didn't give them the money, in a sense. So then, uh, from then on, Pilate tried to release him. He's under heavy conviction, isn't he? But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. And and again, they appealed to power to him. He tried to appeal to power to Jesus, but it didn't work. But then the Jews appeared, uh, appealed to power, and then that worked for, for Pilate, where he yeah. was afraid. Yeah, but look at what ground they're on. Uh, they berate Jesus for being king. They're, char- they're, they're trying him on charges of being a king. And then they turn to the emperor for help instead of God. They, they first say, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he claimed to be the son of God. But in the end, they resort to the emperor to pull him out of this problem. And they were so desperate to eliminate it. Probably a repeat of history. And, and you mean earlier Jewish history? And coming. Okay, um, Shalina, would you read 13, yeah, 13 to 16? When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him out to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. So step by step, they're undoing their position with God, aren't they? This is, this is an undoing of everything that re- they represent. And... This is this is very ironic because they do have a king. Yeah. They have Herod. But most of all they know, surely know from their own writings, their sacred writings, that God is to be their king. So this is blasphemous for them to say. It is. It's clearly they're the ones that should be crucified on their own on their own statement. You know, they're yeah. they have they have uh, rescinded everything of, they have of being God's chosen people. Now, were these the same people that a little while earlier were praying, were waving the palm? Some of them are. When Jesus rode in on the night? Some of them are. That's how fickle human nature is, isn't it? Yeah. It can turn on a, on a sudden blast of wind. So what do you think was the over? Overwhelming thing that got this mass amount of people all of a sudden to just turn against him. That's a good question. Does John even talk about the triumphal entry? I don't think so. I think we'd have to refer to another gospel like Matthew. Oh, the triumphal entry. From chapter 12. Oh, chapter 12. All the way back at chapter 12. I think starting in verse 12. Right. 
And there's the voice from heaven shortly after this, where Jesus is glorified. And then chapters 13 through 17 are solely about Jesus and his disciples. So that the population that uh, Christ crucified him don't even know about that conversation. So we, we're jumping from 12 all the way over to 18. And we don't have much in between that lets us know. Now, if, if, you plug in, if you plug in some of Matthew and Luke and Mark, it seems that Jesus, the one act that he does between the triumphal entry and the crucifixion, that is public, is the commendation of the woman who anoints his feet. That's the one act that I know of. When does that happen? Like in the timeline? In the timeline, it happens after his, right after his triumphal entry, I believe. I may be wrong. John is, let's see, it's in chapter 12, isn't it? Maybe it's before. Maybe John has it before. I, I'm yeah, not sure that John right. is trying to do a chronological. It's oh, 12, it's 12. Seven. It is 12. Yeah. Well, it's 12, the beginning of 12. So it's right before the, the crowd. So that doesn't, isn't our answer. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just like, with the turn, it, it's kind of similar to the disciples. Like, they, everyone misinterpreted Jesus' words. They all believed him still to be a king. Like because, you know, that was their culture for so long that they believed that that was the interpretation, that he was supposed to be a king and supposed to save them from the earthly powers. Well, don't, don't you suppose that maybe it's the triumphal entry itself that sets the stage for this? Jesus goes marching into Jerusalem like he's going to take the throne. And their spirits are high. He's going to do it. He's going to assert himself and take on the kingdom. And he goes, and in Mark's gospel, he just looks around and leaves. And later he cleanses the temple. The, cleansing of, the last cleansing of the temple takes place after his triumphal entry. We know from other Gospels. And in one Gospel, as he approached Jerusalem, he wept. And that's not something you expect your king to do. Mm. I mean, kings, when they rode, this was, this was a common ancient Near Eastern to Roman practice. For the king to march in, into the city, and he'd have his captives bound behind him. Or in front of him. Oh yeah, and sometimes at the trumpet blast. And the trumpet yeah. blast, and and they would he would take his throne, and there would be great celebration, and he would be kind of reinstated as king, and he because he had triumphed over his enemies. This was it's all part of mythology and everything. This was how he got his kingdom was ratified uh, and validated because he had conquered his enemies and he had taken them captive. So when Jesus does this and doesn't take the throne and then cleanses the temple. But this whole crucifixion thing, they're kind of trying to do it like in secret, right? Because they're having all these meetings at night to try and have it like happen. So it's a Well, they do, fear, they do fear that multitude. But what happens is that multitude had their hopes dashed by so, Jesus not yeah. asserting himself. Okay. So they're prepared to go along with the crowd. And keep in mind, the ones who loved him for the right reason, I'm, I'm tempted to say that the bottom line in all of this is selfishness. There were many people Jesus healed that were in that triumphal entry. 
uh, and they were there because they were grateful for what he did for them. But it was for what he did for them. They hadn't changed mm -hmm. their hearts. It hadn't made them unselfish. Uh, they were there in, in it for themselves. So when, when Jesus dashed their hopes, that just laid them right open for going along with the rabble. So they still knew, even though they were trying to keep it secret, like where he was, and that because of everything yeah. that was happening. Well, th by this time, by this time, it's morning. Yeah. And everything's open now. So they all they yeah. they're frustrated that it took so long. They intended it to happen at night, and they get it all done and, and over with, and and nobody would hardly know except the disciples. So the, the sixth hour, then that's referring to like about three o'clock. Was it at about three o'clock in the afternoon? Okay, because I wasn't sure if that was like early in the morning, like because you know they measured the beginning of the day from sundown. So I don't know if it's six hours from sundown or. No, the sixth hour I think has been translated as three o'clock. Okay. Um, what verse is that? Fourteen. Fourteen. Yeah. It was about no. It, I'm sorry. It's about noon. Sixth hour is noon. The ninth hour when Jesus cries out. Yeah. And he dies. Yeah. Um, that's the three. That three o'clock in the afternoon. Well. So measured from sunrise. Yeah. Yeah, because the day begins at sunset for Jews. Yeah. Of course, in some Gospels, they do use a Roman reckoning. See, the Roman reckoning was more like ours, I think. Uh, this is possibly Jewish. I haven't studied that out. So it is about noon. You see, they never intended to go that long. They never intended to have a lot of people witnessing this. They probably intended to crucify him at sunrise by the time people were stirring about and, and noticing he was dead. Or at least it was too late. So they appeal to the emperor. Why do they appeal to the emperor? What, what kind of leverage is that on Pilate? By this time, Pilate was already in trouble with Rome. Right. So appealing to the emperor is, if you don't please us, we'll go to the emperor. Like little kids, mm -hmm. or riot, yeah, or riot and cause you problems. Because he was Pilate. Yeah, yeah, he. I think he had a mandate by now from Rome. Uh, you know, no more riots. <laughs> you got to keep that city calm. Okay, um, Peter, would you read verses seventeen to twenty-five? Seventeen to. You may have to back up and take a little bitty piece of sixteen depending on your version. Um, first off, I just want to say, this will be my last time with you here, and I really appreciate meeting all of you, and I wish there were some others I could say. <sighs> yeah, I don't know where here. they are today. I'm so sorry. Verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, 
do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Okay. So this is the act of crucifixion. This, uh, this Golgotha place was not far from the temple. It's just a little ways over. And it was, it was right beside the main thoroughfare so that people walking by could see him being crucified. And you notice Pilate uh, has an inscription. You know, it's, I, I can't help but feel that... I, I'm going to back up to verse 18. I cannot help but feel that um, it's highly symbolic Jesus being crucified between two thieves. Only, you notice that John does not refer to them as thieves. With two others. He just names them as common human beings. Which means that John apparently has some kind of sympathy for those thieves. Figuring that this whole system is so corrupt that it leads to stealing. It leads to all the, the ills that happen in, in society. And, of course, we know that one of the thieves is going to be in heaven. So I, I, have, a, I, ha, I have this picture in my mind. Of, here is Jesus who has always especially reached out to the sinful, to those who uh, were rejected by others who or more, had Pharisaic pride and their righteousness. And here he is being crucified between these two criminals. Uh, it just, to me, is the, the final cap sheaf in his ministry where he says, I did not call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And then this little story in verses 19 and 20, uh, actually 19 to 22, Pilate uh, puts the inscription on the cross that reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And the chief priests say to Pilate, verse 21, Do not write the King of the Jews. But this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate says, What I've written, I've written. Which shows again his deep conviction that Jesus is who he claimed to be. They have truly rejected their king. And crucified him. I'm going to put that one step further. They have recru- they have crucified God in the flesh. Al- Alistair McGrath, I believe, has written a book called "What Is God Doing on the Cross." 
but I may be wrong. I may be mixing up somebody else that wrote that. Um, but this is, everything John has been saying up to this point is that Jesus is God. And now he's on the cross. My uh, Bible has a footnote, interesting footnote. The clothing that they take off of Jesus. They explain it. It's a Roman custom to remove the clothing of a person being crucified. His clothes, namely the headdress, cloak, or outer garment, belt, shoes, tunic, or inner garment. Four parts, one of the above in order mentioned. So they didn't, they didn't tear the clothing like we sometimes imagine. He had four parts, and they divided them up among them. So now we come to, uh, we're going to back up and do 25 again. I'll, be, I'll read this one. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. This is the first and only time that Jesus' aunt is mentioned. His mother's sister. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own home. If you are in extreme pain and agony, mental depression, overwhelming mental depression, could you do that? Could you remember your mother? Like most people would want comfort, want people comforting them. Mm -hmm. Instead, mm -hmm. it provides comfort to others. Our tendency, our self-centered tendency, is when, when we are threatened with loss, uh, and when, when our, our survival is threatened, particularly, we go into what we call survival mode, uh, where our sole preoccupation is saving ourselves. Jesus doesn't seem to show any signs of survival mode. Just the opposite. Right. He's not trying to save himself. He thinks solely about others. Even though we know from all the other Gospels that his mental agony is so great it's costing him his life. He's not dying from crucifixion. And again, this shows his true character. Exactly. In the most difficult times. Exactly. And, and what a great answer to Satan's charge that God is self-centered, that he is seeking his own things, and that um, he wants people to worship him for his own self-glorification. Okay, uh, Christian, would you read verses 28 to 30? After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so that they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It says from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. 
Did he take her away immediately and miss some of the Jesus words? You know, he only has this, it is finished. He doesn't have, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't have, Father, I commend myself into your hand, my spirit into your hands. He doesn't have the conversation between the thieves on the cross. You wonder if John didn't hear all that. But we have it from the other Gospels. <clears throat> Jesus' seven last words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The, the two sentences, I think, to the two thieves, uh, or to the, the one thief, the repentant thief. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I come up with six. <laughs> but I know that, I understand there's supposed to be seven words, seven, seven lines that Jesus said uh, before he died. What does this tell us about the atonement? Oh, yeah, I thirst. I forgot the seventh one. No, right here. I thirst. It is finished. That goes with the I thirst. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, um, actually, that was number six that I came oh. up with, and okay. so number seven would be I thirst. But actually, I, it is finished is number seven because it's last. It's the last thing he said. Well, I mean, this perfectly speaks to the atonement, especially like the Day of Atonement. You talk about in Leviticus about him being, you know, the sacrificial lamb, upon which all the sins of the people are on. What do we learn? What What have we learned about, and how we can refer to all four Gospels? What have we learned about Jesus' death from just reading the Gospels? About his death, about why he had to die. This was the Jewish people's last chance. Okay, we we can look at what led to his death, can't we? And suggest that Jesus' death is the result of rejection by his own people. This is not the only cause, but, but this is one of the causes. That is... His death is by the rejection of his own people. And they have rejected him. Why? What have we learned about why they rejected him? They're from a different kingdom. They're from a different kingdom. That, that's well said. Can you expound on that? So, Jesus talks about how he's from a different different world, different kingdom, and how there's, there is different... They have different dynamics. I mean, God's kingdom is a kingdom of of peace and of um, love and other centeredness mm-hmm. and selflessness. And then mm-hmm. the kingdom that's kind of perpetuated um, through Israel's history continues to be one where they God draws them back, but then as they go away from God, they become more and more self-centered. They become more and more. And the more self-centered we are, the more we lose our internal locus of control and we start controlling other people. We start resorting to power over instead of power under. Because if, you, if we look at Matthew or Mark 10, and we don't have to look back at that, but I'll just refer to it. Um, Jesus lays down the nature of his kingdom. You know that the Gentiles rule it over you and, those who, and the great men exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. 
Whoever would be first among you must be your servant, and whoever would be great among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served. But not to be served, <laughs> but to serve. I tend to think chiastically. Uh, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the nature of Jesus' kingdom. Uh, that's what he couldn't tell Pilate. Because Pilate wasn't ready for it. And Pilate wasn't listening to what the truth was about the nature of his kingdom. This is a totally spiritual kingdom. A kingdom that deals with the heart. The inner thinking and, and ways of, of doing uh, that come from within. The kingdoms of the world are externalistic. They control from the outside in. They coerce. They manipulate. They, uh, they get political. And very, they're very self-seeking. Uh, it's, it's climbing the ladder and re- trying to reach the top. Uh, Jesus' kingdom is trying to reach to the bottom and support everybody above. So when Jesus says, it is finished, what is finished? I think you think of like so many things when you hear that. You think of what he said to, you know, Adam and Eve in the garden. At the, at the end of creation week, it says in Genesis 2, verse 3, now the hosts of them were finished. Right? Is there a pal- parallel in that? Mm-hmm. I was thinking about what he, like the promise he was giving them. Oh, that the serpent, you would yeah. crush the serpent's head. And, and like now he's saying it's... He will crush the serpent's head. And, yeah. and now he's saying you no longer need to sacrifice the lambs. He's like, that's finished. Mm-hmm. Their whole plan that they had had for him to come down is finally... It's That part is complete. It is the termination of Satan. Okay. I had I had a unique um, interpretation from Doug Clark on um, Jesus going to the spirits in Second Peter. Is it Second First Peter? Sorry. And I can't tell. I I'm not going to reiterate everything he said that led up to this, but it's a very uh, impressive argument. It's been a troubles a troublesome passage to Adventists with our belief in no no ever burning hell and no immortal soul. Mm-hmm. Yes, Peter. Oh, yeah. Okay. Where he goes and preaches to the spirits in prison. Nineteen. Nineteen? Yeah. Second Peter? Or yeah, first? it's three. First uh, Peter three nineteen. First Peter three nineteen. Yeah. Okay, but we're going to go to Second Peter two because there's more to it than that. Uh, yes, he who was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went also and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark. So he made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. Who are those spirits in prison? Look at Second uh, Peter. Verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of deepest darkness to be kept until the judgment. This is Jesus, after his resurrection, goes to 
the forces of Satan and proclaims to them that they are done. They are finished. Imagine that happening. It would be quite a scene. That's, that's, I, I, is, if I read it correctly, that's uh, his, uh, Doug Clark's thesis. These are those who left their posts. Yeah, they left their posts. So back to it is finished. That is finished, as, as Peter said. Uh, I mean, this Peter here. <laughs> what else is finished? What did all did Jesus accomplish by his death? By his life and by his death? I mean, he fulfilled the law in the sense of being all of the all of the practices that okay. they were pointing to, but also that he um, he showed Satan's um, accusation to be wrong, saying that yeah. you you cannot. He showed that you can't live according to the law. And how did Jesus live according to the law? I mean, he lived internally and externally through it. Yeah. In the sense of like his actions, like what, what, what did he what did he show the law to be? Love. Love. See, that's the thing that Satan, who invented the legal model, he can't understand love because he can't control it. And and when you're in a power mode, you can only understand what you can control, and and you can only control what you understand. And so it limits because you're in it for yourself. It limits your ability to see the broader picture of love. Um, the law is not confined to just a long set of rules. It is a bigger, bigger picture of loving God supremely and our neighbor as ourselves. Um, in fact, Jesus, Jesus went beyond loving your neighbor as yourself, which is Leviticus, Leviticus 19.18. He talked about to love one another as I have loved you. And that's, that's a love beyond loving your neighbor as yourself. That's a, a love that you love sacrificially. You're willing to lay down your life for the other. So Jesus, Jesus fulfilled the law. He only not only fulfilled it, he explained it. In fact, one meaning of the term to fulfill is to explain. He explained the far-reaching nature of the law, the internal nature of the law. What else did Jesus finish? Or what else was finished? Satan has, since the cross, resorted to another lie. He can't say the law can't be kept, and he can't say that there was any flaw in the law. But now he claims that Jesus' death has set aside the law that the law can be changed. How did Jesus' death make that claim false? I'll, I'll explain how I think it is, and then we've got to close. The law can only be changed if it's a legal document. And it's built upon legal principles of externally, con, con, externally administered punishment. Because anything legal that is externalistic, that is contrived by people, can be changed. 
if it's externally if if you administer the external punishment yourself and it's arbitrary it doesn't come inherently out of the actions of the people then you can change it because you're in control of it you're controlling the law but if the law is moral and spiritual and it's born out of creation where god set in course both natural and spiritual and moral laws that result in, if broken, result in natural consequences, inherent, inevitable consequences. If that is the nature of the law, then it can't ever be changed. And that's what Jesus' death demonstrates. Because when he died, he didn't die from God's hands. God did not externally administer the punishment that fell on Jesus. He died as the result of sin. Sin is what crushed out his life. And it became clear to the entire universe that the law is not something that gets malleable, contrived, external, and therefore can be changed. But it's something inherent, intrinsic, and inevitable, and therefore cannot be changed. I know that's a load. We'll be coming back to that in Romans. <laughs> Father, we stand at the foot of the cross and find our selfishness rebuked, our attempts to survive, our attempts to uh, do it our way instead of trusting in you. We ask that you will give us the faith of Jesus who could say, I commit everything into your hands and then triumphantly say, it is finished. May we be partakers of his suffering that we might be partakers of his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.